On today's episode, I was joined by Jonathan Friedman, the president and co-founder of Volo Beauty. Volo manufactured the world's first cordless hairdryer, as well as other beauty products like robes, towels, and even scrunchies, if you remember those from the 80s and 90s. On today's episode, we talked about a wide range of topics, but three key insights you're gonna take away is how you can develop that risk profile to be a successful entrepreneur, how to deal with failure, and the importance of not taking things personally as an entrepreneur, but also in life. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Jonathan, thanks for being here today. Uh, thanks for having me. Every entrepreneur has a, a unique journey. I think people tend to think it's all a linear path. I'm just curious for you, when did you realize you wanted to be an entrepreneur? That started really early, young. Actually, my, my uncle once told me when I was junior high, he's like, Jonathan, you'll never make money working for anybody else. You got to own the company. You got to own part of the company. And that's kind of where I got the sort of concept. I didn't know how I was going to get there. I've always wanted to strike my own path. The sort of challenge I had was, you know, my mom, school teacher, you know, grew up with the depression era parents and kind of instilled like a do it safe, you know, get a career with a good company and get that pension and, you know, go down that sort of safe road, right? And it took me a little while to take the plunge and really leave corporate life to strike it on my own. So what were some of those early experiences? I know we, we shared, we overlapped during our time at Accenture in San Francisco, but what were some of those early jobs you held after college? Well, my first job out of college was actually with Accenture, right out of school. And, you know, I was there for a good six years through that whole dot-com bubble, seven years maybe. And I knew I had to get out of there because it was becoming a very comfortable couch. And I looked at the trajectory of my career there and some of the people had stuck around for, for a while and I just didn't want to be there traveling 30 weeks out of the year and that kind of stuff. And just working for some other company to help build you know, another company. I wanted to build my own company. And so the conservative path that I took at that point was to go to business school. You know, I was like, I don't know, really know exactly how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to go to business school. And there I focused on entrepreneurship through acquisition. Right? I was like, okay, I don't know if I can just like start up a company, you know, just from nothing. I just didn't have that sort of confidence yet, but I did think I could run a company. So I went through that path and started searching for businesses to acquire that whole search fund model aspect of it. And I had some people that really believed in me and we found a company in San Diego. That was 15, almost 16 years ago, a machine shop. Um, and we did a leverage buyout and I left the job that I had and came down here. And that was sort of the first step into it, into entrepreneurship. And it was, it was, you know, not a big, huge leap, right? It was a step because at that point I had a baby and I was married and, you know, I wasn't gonna, you know, sit there and rub two sticks together with no money. I needed to sort of segue into it. So it's interesting you mentioned getting your MBA and becoming an entrepreneur. I don't think many people tend to assume that's the path. You know, it's it's more of that, as you said, yeah, rubs two sticks together with no money and try to figure out how to start a business. It's a pretty funny uh, visual there. But like, what was it that allowed you to have the confidence to make that leap, even though you said it's less of a leap and more of a step? I mean, it's, it's still a big step to go out on your own and be your own boss and really be accountable for the success or failure of an entity. 
Well, bottom line, it was a paycheck, right? So I was able to acquire a business that was up and running and had, you know, it's cash flow and all that good stuff. And so I was able to get paid and have equity. So, you know, did that for a while and started to get more confidence in my ability to start my own business. And that's when sort of as a side gig, as the business was going, I actually started a, a software company. And then I ended up raising a bunch of money and moving over to that full time. So, you know, that was about six years after moving to San Diego. That was truly a big leap of faith, but I actually didn't want to use my investors' money to pay for me. So I got a job <laughs> uh, with a huge software company and I did, I burned it at both ends and, and I had a paycheck from sort of the day job and then worked late into the night starting a software company and, and building a mobile app. And it was, and I had two small children. So it was, it was, uh, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not usually the typical path. I know the Peloton founder, I believe had some young kids in a family, but help me understand. So you Accenture MBA bought this machine shop and then you started a, a software company. Like so what was the sequence of those things? Well, after MBA, I needed a job. I wasn't, again, wasn't willing and ready to just start something from nothing. And my entrepreneurial advisor, a guy named Stephen Rogers, who was a very popular professor of entrepreneurship at Kellogg, said, well, go sell. That's what you should do. If you're, you're, you know, you're wanting to own your own business, you're wanting to do it, learn how to sell. So I worked for Boston Scientific selling pacemakers and defibrillators, world-class sales organization. And I was making good money. And that's where I met my future business partner in the software company. And we had an idea for a software tool that would help salespeople. So kind of benched that, bought the company in San Diego, went through that process. And right around then is when the first iPhones came out. And I saw that it was time to execute on this idea that I'd you know, sort of incubated eight years earlier. So, you know, called up my previous boss at Boston Scientific and he's like, let's do it. We both put in some money and then we, you know, put together a deck and raised money and started building software and kind of did that a couple times. That was when I really fully, and then I, after the second round is when I, I jumped out of that full-time job that I was doing as a side gig to do it full-time. Yeah, you mentioned something interesting is just the the importance and ability to sell. You know, that's probably one of my things I wish I had done is take a, a hardcore sales job with with really intense quotas in terms of number of outbound calls and just activities like that. And just just I found in my own entrepreneurial journey just how important that is and, and frankly sometimes an, an impediment. It's just like tell me about some of the things that you learned. Cause I think about at Accenture, your MBA it's a little bit less than being that scrappy salesperson. Like, how did you go about just learning the skills you needed to be successful at Boston Scientific? But then how did you apply that in your entrepreneurial journey? So when I was at Kellogg, you know, all my colleagues, all my fellow students were getting these jobs with finance, you know, consulting, you know, Google or whatever. And I was kind of going out this way, looking for a, a sales gig. And I, I interned with Boston Scientific and they had a program where they would take newly minted MBAs and put them in the field, 
putting in pacemakers for six months to a year. And it truly is an amazing experience and a way to gain incredible credibility when you go to rise up the ranks in management within that medical device company, having been in the operating room with surgeons and so forth. So I did that, but there's also a path in there to selling, which they really weren't encouraging the MBAs to do, but because they wanted them to go up to management, but I wanted to sell. So I kind of looked around and they had all these, <laughs> they had a list of cities to live, like where you could go. And, and none of them were appealing. They were like, you know, no disrespect to the middle of the United States, but I wanted somewhere kind of fun and cool. So I looked at Manhattan and I networked my way to the, the regional manager, who was the guy who ended up starting the software company with me. And, you know, I talked to him on the phone. We hit it off. You know, we just kind of had a good vibe. And then he flew me out and he basically had a, a couple of very simple questions, not even questions, sort of like, here's how I look at whether you're going to be a good salesperson. Number one, you're likable. Nobody buys from somebody they don't like. Whatever it is you're selling, whatever, you know, you, you, know, you need to be likable. Number two, you need to be competent. You really need to know your products inside and out. You need to know the competition. You need to know the objections. The final thing he said was, and this one he did ask me, he goes, Jonathan, are you hungry? And I go, yeah, I'm hungry. I want to make some money, bro. And that is definitely a criteria for salespeople. You know, you got to be going after it because, you know, obviously it's commission-based in most cases. And, you know, that's what's going to get you up early in the morning. That's going to have you working six, seven o'clock at night on a Friday, waiting for that doctor to leave the office and hit him up for this or that. So those are some of the key things I learned about sales for sure. Yeah, I love that. The likable, competent, and hungry. Yeah, most salespeople I know are just absolute killers. That number drives them. They're they up late. They want to close deals, every single one of them. So take me through the journey of the, of the machine shop and the software company. Just like, how do those turn out? Yeah, so the machine shop, it wasn't a home run. It was a solid single double. I, I was kind of getting a little burnt out on it. And that was right around the Great Recession. So the business was challenged. And machine shop business is very difficult. It's very comp, uh, capital intensive. Uh, cash flow is, is, is really hard. So, you know, I sort of made it known that, you know, I was ready to sort of get out and move on to the next thing in which, you know, we all kind of worked together and it was an amicable exit. I'm still in touch with, you know, those guys and actually even work with them in some capacity. And that's when I had that idea for the software company. So I put my resources towards that. Frankly, that was just, it, we, we had some success. You know, we raised a bunch of money. It was a Salesforce integrated, salesforce.com integrated mobile app. But we bit off, I mean, more than you can chew. Like, it, you know, starting your own software as a service company with no track record and minimal resources, you can work as hard as you want. It's a challenge. And we had a good product and we had some customers and a great idea. But ultimately, we just couldn't, you know, turn the corner on it. And it was right around that time when things were kind of not doing so great that this opportunity came up with Volo. And the story there is one of my friend's neighbors in Carmel Valley, San Diego, knew what I was doing. And a lot of my friends kind of were aware of like my sort of track record of raising money, startups, smart guy, engineer, you know. And he said, all right, I have some questions for you. I want to take you out to lunch. And by the end of the lunch, he said, well... I got this NDA here. I've got this idea. 
and I've got an investor who believes in it. I was like, well, that all sounds good. What's your idea? And he said, a cordless hairdryer. I was like, and by the way, his background is beauty. So he is a third generation of a beauty company here in San Diego. They had 21 stores and salons, big chain, you know, pretty decent sized operation. And he was part of it for his whole career. Really knows the beauty industry, but doesn't know that other aspect of it, right? Which is, you know, starting a business, raising money, engineering, making a product, manufacturing. So that's really what I brought to the table. And off we went. You know, we basically shook hands. And, you know, he was right. He had a, a very well healed investor who was excited about it, who believed in him and the idea. And the next step was to kind of see if we could do it. I want to go back a little bit. I mean, that's super interesting. I want to hear about the, the Volo story. But you talked about before, just even we talked the last time about not having the risk profile of an entrepreneur. I'm just curious, how did you talk yourself into that? Or how did you get yourself more comfortable with the risks of associated being an entrepreneur? Obviously, you talked about it being a step to buy the machine shop and then starting this software company, obviously a bigger leap and borrowing friends and family and, and investors money. But now you're going into this completely new area. I mean, you got great hair, but just going and becoming a, a hairdryer company seems like a pretty big leap. So like, how did you go about de-risking it or just developing that, that right risk profile? Yes. Gosh, it's a good question. I, it's been risky all throughout, but I always had to have some kind of income. You know, at the time I have, I was married with, you know, two kids. So I had to figure out a way to do it. And that's where that other sort of side job with a large software company helped me keep it going and sort of reduce that risk from a standpoint of, can I put food on the table? And if I was able to do that, my calculus was, then I can take all the risks in the world because at least I can provide for my family, right? Where it got more interesting and where the risk, you know, I think, may, I guess maybe for me, it was like one of those things where if you put a frog into a boiling water, it hops out. But if you slowly turn on the heat, he stays there. I think maybe I'm the frog who's sort of staying there, right? And, and that's not a bad thing in this case. I just got more and more accustomed to how you have to trust yourself and you have to believe in what you're doing to the point where you're willing to make those kinds of sacrifices, not just of money, but time. And you're, you're really putting a lot towards it. And for me, it got really hard, right? When that software company wasn't doing so great, neither was my marriage. And, you know, that started to kind of splinter and eventually fell apart. And I still had some money coming in, but ultimately by getting divorced, we sold our house and that money <laughs> that I got from half of the sale of the house was enough for me to live on for a while, you know, on, on pretty, you know, humble means. And that's where the risk is, right? I, instead of taking that money and like putting it into a bunch of other things or whatever you could do with it or saving it, I was living off of it because I believed in Volo. And I think when you talk about that risk and, and jumping in, it comes down to having a real good feeling about how this business is going to play out. And the fact that I had failed a few times definitely was a lens that I looked at this venture with and saw that there was an opportunity despite, you know, having, you know, the software company not succeed 
this was something it lined up on a bunch of different things when I when I look at you know feasibility and will I put my own neck on the line for this company. Yeah, we tend to glamorize entrepreneurs and you know names and lights, et cetera. And we don't. I think we often step over or ignore or at least downplay this the the personal impact it has us and the tax and I mean, gosh, you had a kids, a marriage, a side job at a major you know software company while you're launching a startup. I mean, that that's massive. And just, you know, what a, you know, personal toll that must take. I mean, how, how do you even balance all of that? I mean, that that's incredibly tricky. Well, I, yeah. And honestly, I didn't do a good job of it. You know, fully transparent. I wasn't working out, which was a big mistake. And I was really, really stressed. And now that I look back on it, I was also sort of reeling from getting punched in the nose for the first time. Right. So my life, I was a good student. I worked really hard in high school and did all the things and got into a good college. Went to college and, you know, college wasn't, you know, first year of engineering school, not so easy, but, you know, kind of made it through that, graduated and got a really good job, getting paid well, doing things I really liked, moving forward with that, met this amazing woman, got into the best business school moved to Chicago, got a great job afterwards, making money, bought a house, had a kid. Things are just, all right, now we're going to jump into entrepreneur. And then all of a sudden, it's hard, real hard. And you're feeling like, wait, this wasn't supposed, this isn't supposed to happen like this. Everything what I focus on is supposed to go this direction. And you're right. All those things, having two kids, having two jobs and trying to make it all work proved to be too much. And who knows, you know, how things would have panned out. And I don't have any regrets to be straight, but there's definitely a confluence of living that dream, going after it, and some of the things that might happen as a result of it in the wake of it. It's interesting as I, as I think about what you've just described, you know, some failures and, and how you get up again, but on the flip side, just consistently being successful and, and winning and, and then getting punched in those, as you said, I mean, just like what a just almost, I don't want to say contradiction, but just interesting when you compare those two things about like having failed a few times and then getting back up, but then also succeeding in so many different ways all, in all the ways you mentioned and, and then getting that, you know, derailed. So just like, what a, what a crazy experience in time. Yeah. I mean, thank you. And I think sooner or later, you know, people are going to hit hardship in their life. And I, I guess I have some gratitude that these things that happened, some of which were in my control and other things were not in my control, they lead to wisdom, right? Uh, I think it's a Buddhist thing. Once you accept that, you know, in life, you're going to feel pain, you're going to suffer, then you can sort of accept that, right? And you, you can sort of let a lot of things go. And I think for me, having gone through, you know, some of the things I've described, and then, you know, I've lost several people close to me along the way, you know, those things actually are a gift in some respect, right? And, and you walk away with them with an awareness and a humility that some people don't get to have until they've gone through something difficult. So let's jump back to, to the Volo story. So you've got this business partner, you know, raise some money, you're working on this hairdryer product, cordless hairdryer product. Like what was next for you guys? Yeah, so first thing was, could we do it? And we needed to get a little pot of money 
to build a prototype. And it was really fun, actually. In the beginning, you know, we didn't know how difficult it was to make a cordless hairdryer. We had no idea. Hair dryers consume an incredible amount of power, as much as any other item in your house. And they're incredibly inefficient. So we had to reinvent the hairdryer in a, in a lot of ways to make it work. It was just a very slow process. But we just, it's one of those things you hear about in entrepreneurship. We didn't know what we didn't know. So that if we had known how difficult it would be, we might not have done it. But we just kept moving forward and recognizing how challenging it was going to be and how long it was going to take to get this thing made. That's when we started, had to come up with some other products to sell. What was that, uh, that next step for you guys? I mean, I think obviously the, the art of the pivot is so important for any entrepreneur and just in struggling with some of those, those engineering challenges, like what did you guys do to, to figure out what was next for you guys? So we got to a point where we had come up with a really cool design for the dryer and it really comes down to the heating element. Every hair dryer out there uses nichrome wire which heats up and then you blow air across it. It's convection heat, just like your toaster oven. We discovered that if we used a bulb, an infrared bulb, similar to this, it would produce radiant heat, like the sun. You step outside, you feel the heat of the sun. It's a different way of transmitting heat, and it's also much more efficient, right? So we actually created a hybrid heating element that had a little bit of nichrome and a lot of infrared light. So we proved that we could do it. We, we actually had a working prototype. It wasn't connected to a battery. It was connected to a power source that replicated what a battery would do. And with that confidence that we could actually you know, produce something that had enough power to dry hair, we said, okay, we think we have something here. Let's make a visual prototype, just a you know, plastic, you know, really nice high-end dummy device, and let's pitch it on Kickstarter and see if we can make a bunch of money from people that put in pre-orders and then take that money and then go make the first order of dryers. And so we started really digging into the Kickstarter process. And one of the things we had heard was if you are trying to really succeed, people look for companies that have a track record of delivering the products that they've taken people's pledges for. So we said, okay, well, why don't we come up with a very simple product that will allow us to have a track record? And then, bam, number two, people are going to believe that we can deliver because we delivered on the first one. So we sat around and we came up with the idea for a hair towel, like a better hair towel. And this wasn't my idea. It was our team. And I didn't even know this thing existed. I didn't know that there's a special towel just for drying your hair. But sure enough, it's a it's an industry. And we looked at all the hair towels that were out there and we came up with our own. We put it on Kickstarter and it did great. And that's how we had our first product to sell. It's really because as a means to an end to get the funding for the dryer. That's such an interesting path. I mean, I think it's usually you pivot away from something. It's not you, you pivot towards something else as a way to get back to what the initial idea of the product was. So what was that like? Like, well, how did it get received in the, the Kickstarter community? And what were some of the things you were hearing from some of your customers? It was and continues to be a winning product. And so that's where, you know, we were mentioning Pivot. We really put a lot of our passion that we were putting towards this, you know, this beautiful dryer 
towards a simpler product in this towel. And we looked at everything. We looked at the size of it, the, the fabric. We went through all these different fabrics and finally kind of engineered our own, which we trademarked as Nano Weave. We made it bigger than all the ones that were out there. And we put this elastic strap on the uh, back of the towel. So when somebody wraps it around their head, it tucks in. And then we put it in beautiful packaging. And so we did a few things that no other company was doing. And people responded. They bought them all up on Kickstarter. And then we just started selling them. I don't know how they found us, honestly. Like Blue Mercury was one of our first retail customers. We put up our Shopify site with one product on it, a pink hair towel. And it just it started to sell. People wanted it. And then we somehow got, oh, we hired a PR firm who got us on the Today Show. And that was humongous. Like that was one of those seminal moments where in we had placed our biggest production order for 10,000 units. And it had just come in, like just right before Chinese New Year. We just kind of barely got the, you know, got it in. And then we put it up on the Today Show and we sold every single one of them. Like we couldn't believe it. Like within a few hours. <laughs> like, holy crap. And we had to actually had to fill all those orders out of my out of my business partner's garage, which was hilarious. We had all the kids in the neighborhood and you know, the we filled up a, a horse trailer with product, you know, and the, the post office truck would come and fill up the post office, the uh, the postal truck. It was it was a kind of a fun, wild time. I've had a few friends who uh, have been on Shark Tank and gotten funded successfully and just I just wonder like, what was that experience like for you to be there? And uh, gosh, on, on some sense, it's some sort of validation of we made it, we did it, we have this product people actually love. Like, what was that experience like for you? Did you even have a chance to just even sit there and enjoy it and uh, take a victory lap, if you will? No, honestly, we weren't really focused on the towel. I mean, we, we realized we we're getting, some, we're making some money, which was keeping us afloat, was keeping the lights on. So we're like, okay, this is great, you know? But we didn't realize that, that's really something to be proud of. And, and now, now it, it, ha, it is, you know, we won the Allure Best of Beauty Award a couple times and we're finally at a stage in the company where we're scaling. And that's, that is where every entrepreneur wants to be. And that's because we have a winning product. And that is one of, you know, if we look back on my career, like I'm so proud of that. We actually created a, a product that people love and, you know, they're obsessed with and they write us notes and, and, the reviews are, are just incredible. And that's very satisfying. But it, it took a little while to realize what we had had, what we had created. And, you know, because we're so focused on getting this hairdryer made. As you described the product, I remember just seeing it for the first time on your website. Just it definitely looked different. You know, I remember seeing my wife, you know, do what looked like origami to get one of the traditional towels to actually stay tight on her head. And when I had long hair, I remember her fixing it on my head as well. But what a challenge is, I just remember just being struck by the product communicating a lot of the benefits. Like, so how did it, like what went into the design process? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll share my screen here so that anybody who's watching um, can get the idea. But we actually did good old fashioned, you know, go to the arts and crafts store and I got a bunch of different materials and elastic. And I had a vision for this, this strap, this band, but we, we cut up different, towels and we created the right size and we figured out the right spot for this thing. And it's one of those things when somebody sees it, you know, whether it's on the Today Show or on an Instagram ad or just on our website, they're like, oh yeah, 
the hair towel just goes right in there. looks awesome. And then once they use it, you know, the fabric that we created is just incredibly absorbent. And people just say, this is now part of my beauty regimen. This is a must-have. And by the way, since it's in such nice packaging, I'm going to buy some for my mom and my gift, my, you know, my sister's. So it's very giftable. And that's, that's when things started to just really roll downhill. Yeah, well, you're, you're borrowing from just the importance of packaging that just Apple keeps showing us time and time again and the, the unboxing experience and so forth. So now you've got this towel, you've got this product, you're validated in the marketplace. What happened with the, the hairdryer? I appreciate you showing me the hairdryers that are behind you in your, in your office there. Like, how do you get that back on track? Yeah, well, no, I mean, we kept moving forward with the development of it. We had to raise three rounds of angel funding. And then we formed a partnership and got investment from Paul Mitchell. So that was huge. Our Series A with a strategic investor, global beauty brand. We literally sat down in front of John Paul DeJuria, who is the guy who started Patron Tequila (laughs) as well. And he's an amazing human. And his daughter and his executive team and we pitched the dryer and, and they wanted the dryer. I mean, they were like, this is really cool technology. We want a piece of this. So we kept going and we actually made the dryer. So it is available. It's for sale and we're selling some, but it's not, it didn't blow up. It just didn't, you know, and I, you know, I, there's a, all kinds of ways you can look at it and answer that question. Um, it is a good product. It's not for everybody. It's a little heavier than a normal hair dryer. Not a lot. It's only two and a half pounds, but enough that some people are concerned about that. It's not as hot. You know, and Dyson came up with this supersonic, which really kind of took over the high-end uh, hairdryer market. They have really nailed it uh, with that product. It was the first $400 hairdryer we'd seen, and now they're up to 500 and they have all these other ones. So we have it. It's been, you know, still part of the fabric of our company, but where we've put a lot of our time and resources in into just expanding this fabric line. So we've got you know, headbands, spa headbands, and scrunchies, face towels, body towels that are great, by the way. I'll send you one. They are awesome. And then we got a robe coming, a spa wrap. So that's how we're growing the business. Different colors. What a fantastic example of pivoting. But I'm curious just to go back to the moment where you decided to raise more money for this hair dryers. Why not just do towels? You've been remarkably successful you got the neighbor kids, you got your, uh, your free labor out there boxing up your towels and shipping them out. Like, why not just stick with, uh, you know, the other beauty products? Yeah, I think part of it is a commitment to the angel investors. You know, the early investors that put money in, we're putting money into a cordless hairdryer business. And we weren't really ready to sort of just abandon that, right? And, you know, take all this technology and patents and things so forth. We have eight patents on it. So that really didn't cross our minds. Now, you know, I don't know if we'll order another batch of these hair dryers. We do have some really cool, what they call hot tools, product concepts that we've tested out and we want to bring to market, but we will do that at a later time. But yeah, I mean, at this point, we're in a good position because we don't have to put all that money towards the R&D of the dryer and the inventory of the dryer. and, And we can focus on you know, a very profitable product in the hair towel. But yeah, I mean, we never thought about giving up on that. Part of it was our commitment to the investors and, and our belief that this would change the industry. 
it's just an, another example that things that really, they make sense. I remember seeing for the first, oh, wow, Jonathan's starting this hairdryer company. Makes so much sense. Like, wh- why does a hairdryer have to have a cord attached to it? But just hadn't thought about the engineering challenges, but just doesn't mean that it's going to be a guaranteed success. So just like a, another reminder of that. So what's next for you guys? So you got the towels, which you showed. You got the headbands, the scrunchies. I hadn't heard the scrunchie word since the 90s. That's cool. Good flashback there. But like robes, you know, like what else you got to go on? What's the future of Volo? Yeah. So, you know, it's very fun to be scaling, right? So that means we have a great base of products led by the hair towel and going into new ways, you know, new channels. You know, we just launched on target.com. I'm in talks with Costco. We are continuing to ramp up our business with QVC. And then there's new segments like spas, uh, luxury hotels, and the fact that we have a body towel, we also have a hand towel. So now we're going to have a whole bathroom of, you know, the bathroom is taken care of and just growing the business. It's, you know, for me, like the thrill is in growing a successful business and, and brand, whether, you know, I can't, you know, lament the hairdryer too much. We just want to have a good, successful business. And QVC is is a pretty good, like we're doing QVC UK. Um, to answer your question in short, it's just growing, selling. I mean, just good old fashioned, like, all right, we've got a winning product. Now let's pour gasoline on it and, you know, get bigger orders with bigger companies and get more people using this product. You mentioned scaling. You mentioned getting into QVC and Target and Costco. I think for many people think that's the finish line. You've made it. You've got it. But talk about some of the some of the challenges of scaling and you know fulfilling all those orders and being able to finance those things. Like, what are some of the challenges that are going on, frankly, behind the scenes? Sure. Yeah. But and I want to mention, even though we have some of those big names, QVC, Target, Costco, our bread and butter like is high end luxury. So Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, Anthropology, you know, those are the retailers that have you know, we've started off with and have allowed us to keep our sort of premium luxury brand. You know, to answer that question, it's cash flow, right? So, you know, we have to place orders for these. It takes a few months and then you have to put a big deposit down. It takes a few months to get the product. You have to pay for the product in its entirety before it leaves. We have all the stuff made overseas. You have to pay for it all. And then it takes a month to get, you know, here in the warehouse. It takes a few months to sell it. Most retailers are going to pay us in 60 days, you know, sometimes more. And so floating all that is, is a real challenge right now. So we've got some working capital, some debt, things like that to help us with that. But it is definitely a challenge. And, you know, it's keeping an eye on costs as you're growing is, is also really challenging. You know, things like Amazon advertisements, which can easily just, you know, hit tens of thousands of dollars a month in you know advertising on Amazon, those kinds of things, you got to watch it, you know, because all of a sudden you're like, wait, why aren't we making any money? <laughs> you've gone through just quite a journey just in terms of everything you've described today. What have you learned about yourself as you've gone through this journey of through school and through startups and, and life issues and challenges and stuff? Like what's, what's the big, some lessons you learned about yourself and how you apply those moving forward? Yeah, that's a good question. I think probably the biggest thing is what I described earlier, that time when I got punched in the nose for the first time, 
part of what I've learned since then is you can't take it personally. Things are going to happen in your life. Things aren't going to always go the way you want. Things are going to succeed or fail. But it's not doesn't mean you're a bad person. And it shouldn't impact your view of yourself, your self-worth, your sense of self. And back then, honestly, I did. I thought I was failing as a human. I was inherently flawed because I wasn't, I wasn't having these things go the way I wanted to. And what I've learned through a lot of hard work, you know, on myself and, and, and also just maturity and is you're still the great human you are, even if things don't go the way you've planned or want, even if this whole thing just doesn't work at all, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're a failure. And that strong sense of self is really what I've learned the most. You know, that's, that's sort of the biggest takeaway, not just from all the challenges of entrepreneurship, but just the challenges of life. Yeah, well said. It's a, it can be challenging, this, this journey of life, this journey of business. Well, Jonathan, I appreciate your time today. I appreciate you sharing the entrepreneurial journey as well as the personal journey. But where can people go to find out more about Volo products, maybe pick up a, a hairdryer, a towel, or even a scrunchie? Uh, well, our website is volobeauty.com, V-O-L-O, beauty.com. Right now, I'm definitely pushing people towards the products we're selling on target.com because those guys have believed in us. And so my friends are like, where should I buy your product now? And then, you know, like six months ago, it was Nordstrom. Like, go to Nordstrom, buy our product, please. Now I'm telling folks to, you know, to get it on, uh, on target because we want that retailer to succeed. So, you know, we've got great stuff on the website There's sales you know sign up for our email and um, yeah appreciate it appreciate the plug cool yeah thanks for coming on today appreciate it jonathan thanks buddy mm-hmm.